All right, so if you um, haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a, um, what's going to be a five-week relationship series. So we've been looking at anything from friendships to dating relationships to um, last week we talked about separately as guys and girls, our roles as uh, men and women uh, in, in the world and also in the body of Christ and maybe some specific things as guys and girls with uh, Colby and, and Teresa. And, uh, and so this week, we're kind of moving on in that progression and we're going to be talking about um, what I believe is something that we really need to um, address and have conversations about as Christians and non-Christians alike is a homosexuality and what the Bible says about that. And so it's going to be a, a little more serious night. Um, I hope it's not going to be you know, too much like, you know, somber, but it's going to be a little more serious night. Um, we, it's going to be, you know, like kind of put on your big boy pants tonight. We may have a few conversations that are a little more serious, but I believe you guys can do that. Um, you're all college students here. And so... Um, but the, re- the reason I'm bringing this up is not because I have an axe to grind and not because um, I'm you know, looking to throw any stones at, at anyone in this conversation tonight. Um, you may be wondering, well, why, why are we talking about this? Why should we bring this up? Um, but because I think, kind of hearkening back to our apologetics conversations that we had earlier this semester, um, this is something, this issue, and I hate to call it an issue because it's more than that, but this issue is something that our culture has begun to define as um, the standard for you to be kind of welcome to the table in cultural conversation. It's become something that our culture has declared as good, and if you um, aren't accepting of that in any kind of way, then you're kind of ostracized. And we see, we've seen a lot of that in different arenas through politics and through even education. A lot of campus ministries have had issues with this, with some of their practices on campus, and it's become a really hot-button issue. And I think it's something that we need to, um, as Christians then, and as non-Christians, to be clear on what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say about homosexuality. Because it's only, only going to become a bigger issue. It's only going to grow. And so as believers, and especially as students who are growing up in a much different culture than people 30 or 40 years ago were, we need to have thought biblically through this issue and know how to articulate what the Bible says, what it doesn't say, and be able to express that. So we're doing this tonight. Um, and also we really need this um, because we need to know how to respond to uh, our friends who ascribe to being gay. Um, I have friends who are homosexual. I need to know and understand more biblically how I can love them and, uh, and respect them, but also speak truth to them and, and walk through this in a way that Jesus would be honored in. And so uh, we want to look at that um, tonight too. Um, but I, I also want you to understand the fact that we're talking about this uh, maybe shows you that, uh, that I love you <laughs> and that I care about you and, and I care about uh, teaching the word to you and, and not shying away from things because they're hard to talk about. Um, it'd be a lot easier to grow a college ministry by not talking about things like this and talking about other more cool things to talk about. But I think this is, is helpful um, to go through. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. That was kind of my spiel intro. Um, is that we're going to look at what the scriptures say um, on the subject of homosexuality. And then next week, we'll do one more week, and we're going to look more at kind of our response. Kind of has, as a church and as Christians, how do we live um, and respond to this issue and really um, love people Honor them, respect them, but still respond in truth in that kind of way. And really, even next week, we're going to get more big picture than just this. We're going to talk about how do we even live in the midst of hot-button issues and how we model Christ in that kind of way. But that, that'll be next week. Okay? So, um, we cool with that? By the way, one thing I want to say is if you have a question at any point tonight, um, feel free to ask it. Raise a hand, say something like, it's okay to interrupt me tonight. That's, man, that's a big permission, right, to interrupt me. But um, right, it's okay to stop me and ask a question or that kind of thing, okay? And if you have any questions later on after this t- talk tonight, like something I maybe said that just kind of rubbed you the wrong way, like, please come talk to me, all right? I want to be crystal clear with this. There's a lot of things in here that are difficult, that are, you know, controversial kind of things we're going to talk about. Come talk to me, all right? We're not, we, nothing, none of this is too, you know, taboo to discuss, okay? And so, could someone turn that ice machine off over there? Can we all get that? Thank you. That's going to drive me crazy. All right, so here's one of my preliminary thing, all right? Here's my preliminary for tonight. Um, because I know most of y'all, but I don't know all of you really, really well. Thank you. Man, it got so quiet in here when you did that. And so, um, but I don't know all of your pasts, and I don't know all of your in- the intricacies of your life. And so there very, mo- very well may be someone in here tonight who, um, who either ascribes to being gay or has experienced uh, same-sex attraction in the past, and uh, and. If you're here tonight, I want to say, first off, you're welcome, and I'm really glad uh, that you're here. And on the first thing on your outline, if you can look at that, is this that I really want to highlight and really want us to start out with, 
And it's this. And the reason these are not on the same sheet tonight is because I want to give you plenty of room to take notes if you want to take notes as well. So that's why it's there. Um, The first thing is this, is that the, the church should be welcoming to all, even if not all lifestyle actions are affirmed. Right? God takes us as we are, all of us, right? not just one specific group, but God takes all of us as we are, but doesn't want to leave us there. So, so know this tonight, is that I'm not here to throw stones. Uh, I've, I've got plenty of my own sin struggles that I have to deal with every day and, and work of repenting through um, every day. Right? I, I'm not going to stand up here and condemn anyone, shame anyone, tell anyone they're going to hell, and that kind of thing. Not on my agenda tonight. All right, not, not ever on my agenda, but definitely not tonight, okay? Um, every person here is absolutely welcome and will always be welcome here. If we ever get to the point as a church or as a college ministry that we're not welcoming, welcoming of people just because we disagree with them on something, we've completely lost what it means to follow Christ, right? Because like we talked about two weeks ago, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, right? Or three, week, three weeks ago, I guess. He was known as, as a friend of sinners, right? He never was someone who turned people away because they were, quote-unquote, you know, not worthy of him or because he disagreed with them on certain things, right? So um, as a church, Colby talks about we should, be one of, we should be the most welcoming environment on University Boulevard. And I believe that absolutely is true, even when it applies to this issue. Um, in John 1.14, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus is described as this. Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. All right, full of grace and truth. And I think that's really helpful and something we need to focus on as we begin tonight. Because think about this. Uh, truth without grace is potentially um, hurtful and potentially hateful, while grace without truth is unloving because then we're not being honest with people about the reality of sin and what the Bible says is right and wrong. All right? I'm, just, I'm talking about big picture, general, everything when it comes to sin, right? Um, and so one without the other, like grace without truth or truth without grace is not a faithful representation of Christ, right? To represent Christ, we need to be full of both of those things, grace and truth. Turn with me in your Bible, if you will. We're going to be all over the Bible tonight, so get ready. It's going to be like Bible drills, flashback. Um, go, to, go to Mark, all right? We spent a lot of time in Mark last semester. Go to Mark 2, if you will. Mark 2.17, all right? Look what Jesus says here in Mark 2.17. He says, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, and this is the key thing here, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners. And so basically what we see there, right, is that Jesus is for sick people, right? Not people who think they're well. One of the prerequisites for becoming a member of the church and becoming a Christian is to admit that you are screwed up and that you're broken, and that you need Jesus. We forget that sometimes because we get here in the South and we get real dressed up on Sunday and we act like everything's all good and we walk around in the hallway, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. How you doing? I'm great. I'm awesome. When it's not really true half the time, right? And um, that's a different story. But one of the prerequisites for being a church member, right, is that you're a sinner. Like, you you admit you're a sinner, right? (laughs) And we forget that. But we see right here that Jesus says that he didn't come for those who think they're well, think they have it all together, but those who admit their brokenness and their need to be restored and made whole in some kind of way, right? And so for us, here's the thing that I heard um, used recently that it's great. is Jesus, um, or that the church should be more like a hospital waiting room and not like a lobby for a job interview. You ever been to a job interview before where you had to sit in the lobby and like you're dressed up, you're looking your best, and if you were there and other people were interviewing too, you're all like looking your best. You're all trying to put, on, put your best foot forward, put your, base, your uh, best kind of face on for that interview. If, if the, in, in the interview they ask you, what's your greatest weakness? You're like, my greatest weakness is that I just care too much. Like I'm just too good at what I do. Like it, it distracts people from how, what they're doing because I'm just so, like, you know, like we, we try to put on this face of like we have no problems, right? But um, two weeks ago, I spent six whopping hours in a hospital waiting room on Sunday, because I had a sinus infection first off, so I went to the doctor for an hour and a half that day, and everyone else in there had the same thing. So I sit in there for, and forever and get treated. And then my girlfriend gets sick that night, and I have to take her to the hospital because she's dehydrated and thrown up everywhere. And see, she has no fluids in her, so there's your dinner for the night. Um, but, uh, so then we, then we sit in DCH uh, Northport for uh, four and a half hours um, that night as well. So I spent six hours in the hospital waiting room. I probably got three more diseases in the process of sitting in the waiting room. Anyway, but like... one. 
and now you're all getting everything. So sorry, guys. Um, but the thing I noticed in there is that no one in the waiting room cares. You ever been to the waiting room in the hospital? No one gives a crap what they look like when they go there. Everybody looks terrible, right? Because they're all sick. Like everybody's looking awful, but no one cares why because it's the hospital. Like you don't expect someone to look good when you're at the hospital. You expect them to look bad because they're at the hospital, right? And the church in some ways should be the same way. Uh, when we come here, we shouldn't expect all of us to have it all put together and figured out because we're at church. Like we're here because we need Jesus, right? <laughs> and so the church should be the same way that we, we should have no problems admitting our brokenness and our faults and our need for repentance and our need to be forgiven and that kind of thing because that's what Jesus is about, right? And so as we approach this issue tonight, we should in no way elevate ourselves on some kind of platform to say, well, I don't, you know, I don't, you may not struggle with this specific issue, but I can guarantee you're struggling with something else, right? So that levels the playing ground in some ways, all right? So, um, but with that, God didn't just call us all to stay in the same place, right? He calls us all to repent and to change our minds because we need, in order to do that, in order to change our minds on certain things, we have to know the truth. So all that put aside, um, I'm simply here tonight for us to take a, an honest look at what the Bible says about the issue of homosexuality because it's such a hot button and controversial issue, we need some biblical wisdom on this issue, okay? So we're going to be all over the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, so get ready. All right, so go with me first to Genesis. Genesis 2. Genesis 2. So let's look here at the beginning and at how the Bible describes from the beginning how we were designed as humanity to relate to each other, especially sexually, Okay? Um, go to Genesis 2. Um, we're going to start in verse 18 and go from there. So Genesis 2.18, I gave it to you on your outline so you should see it. Here's what Genesis 2.18 says. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed... Actually, hold on. Skip on to verse 21. All right, so I will make a helper fit for him. Skip to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the, the man... And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, fun fact there is that little kind of stanza that Adam says, um, when he replies to sing Eve, it's kind of one of the first recorded like poems or songs in the Bible. Right? So it's pretty cool to see like one of the first songs is about Adam being like, man, Eve. I like that. That's awesome. So, all right. So, all right, so flip over to chapter 128. All right. Look at verse 28 of chapter 1. This is God blessing and speaking to Adam and Eve. God says this. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so that's how we've been designed from the beginning, according to Genesis 1 and 2. So I want to give you two things that we see right there. We see two things about God's design for our sexual relationships. All right, they're to do two things. They're to complement each other, and they have procreative purposes in mind. All right? Complement each other and procreative, big word, procreative, have babies, purpose in mind, okay? All right, so we see a few things here I want to point out. The, the way in which the woman was created from Adam's side indicates that she is um, Adam's and man's divine complement in life by the way she was created. And then also, if you look at... Uh, chapter 2 again, where it says, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, which Paul echoes even in Ephesians, right? For there to be a true one flesh union, if you think about it, I'm not going to get into detail here, but by the way that we're designed, it makes sense for that union to be of two people of the opposite sex, first off. Uh, if you think about also the, the command that God gave Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, only two people of opposite sex can fulfill that procreative purpose that God gave Adam and Eve. That's not to say that procreation is the only pro point of marriage, not saying that having kids is the only purpose of sex, but marriage cannot be properly um, defined without thinking about the children that can and naturally should, in many ways, come about because of that marriage. And so we see that, first off, God designed our sexual relationships to complement each other and have procreative purposes in mind. And so 
That would lead us then to believe that, first off, homosexual acts are wrong because they violate that creational order. That they, they aren't complementary in terms of how our bodies are designed, and they have um, no way to have any procreative uh, purposes that come about. No kids can come about that kind of relationship. Okay? And then we look at in, uh, the Gospels, we'll get to in a second, Jesus even reflects that in some of his teaching, that he echoes back to um, even that, rather, that passage there, verse 24, where therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. All right? So we see from the beginning we're designed that way. Skip on with me to, to Leviticus, all right? We're going Leviticus, guys. It's happening, all right? Bring on Leviticus. It's about to get real up in here, all right? All right, look at Leviticus 18.22. You've heard this verse probably before. I hate proof texting, so don't worry. I'm going to give you context here in a second, but I'm going to read it, and then we'll talk about it, all right? I hate just reading one random verse from Leviticus and not giving you context because it's not helpful. Yeah, so, but read this with me. You've heard it before, but we need to start, start here. Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Very straightforward. Leviticus is pretty cut and dry. All right, but, but let me tell you about Leviticus, all right, and give you a little understanding. Uh, what do you think is the theme of the book of Leviticus? If you could do it in one word. Okay, well, what's the point of the law, though, for Leviticus? Uh huh. Protection to keep you from what? A lot of things from sin, wrath, Okay. So, what's the opposite of those things? What What are our lives like? What are we when we stay away from sin? When we flee from those things? Hmm? Holy. There you go. So, the theme of Leviticus is holiness, right? That's the theme of Leviticus. And so, it, actually, it, the word's used 87 times in the book of Leviticus. And so, the point of the book of Leviticus then is to guide Israel because it's who it's written to specifically in context, is to guide them to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, right? So in the book, you've got holy people with holy clothes and a holy land at a holy place, using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by a holy law, right? There's lots of holiness going on there, right? One day, I'm going to not teach it verse by verse, but one day we're going to do an overview of Leviticus and unpack some of that more, but that may, maybe if I want to drive everyone away from this ministry, we'll do that. But... um. But uh, it, it's some fascinating things in there we'll talk about sometime in the future. But the second half of the book, kind of where we're at in chapter 18, is called the Holiness Code. All right? I'm not trying, to, not trying to bore you too much, but this is important context. All right? And it gives guidance for how Israel was to live as holy people. All right? And then chapter 18, where we're in, discusses how Israel should um, be holy in their family life and their sexual life. So if you look at some of the verses before that, we got verses 6 through 27. It tells, tells us incest is bad. All right? Verse 19, taking a rival wife is bad. All right. Verse 20, adultery is bad. Verse 21, killing our children is bad. All right. Uh, verse 22, homosexual activity is bad. Verse 23, bestiality is bad. All right. So we're, it's giving us holiness codes um, for Israel. Um, but one thing to notice here is that in that passage, there are no qualifiers put on that sin besides um, it being committed with another person of the same gender. Right, there's no qualifiers. It doesn't say if those two people are committed or, or they're in a consensual, long-term committed relationship, then this homosexual activity is okay. It simply calls it a sin. Right? It calls it a um, strong word, but it's what it says. It calls it an abomination. Right? But here's what you're thinking, maybe. You're like, well, is Leviticus even applicable? Right? Leviticus, yeah, it's full of all kinds of... Yeah, well, we're getting there. But it's full of all kinds of weird stuff, right? Leviticus tells us not to eat pork... And we love bacon, right? Uh, Leviticus tells us not to eat shellfish, and I love me some oysters and stuff. Right? Leviticus tells us not to wear clothes made of different um, fabrics, like, yeah, mixed materials, right? And everyone here is probably wearing clothes made of mixed materials, right? And so there's lots of weird things in Leviticus. And so many people, and maybe some people here tonight, which is fine, we talk about it, but believe that, oh, because of those things, Leviticus doesn't apply to us anymore. We just kind of throw it out, doesn't matter, right? So that passage about homosexuality doesn't count. Some people would say that. I want to give you some reasons that it's not the case. All right, I'll give you four quick ones and we'll move on. Um, but Kevin DeYoung, in one of his books um, on this issue, gives some really great reasons for why these verses are still relevant and why this verse specifically is still relevant to the conversation about homosexuality. All right, they're real simple, but I want to give them to you. Um, first is this. No Christian should start with the assumption that the laws of Moses don't apply to us anymore. All right? No Christian should start with the assumption that the laws of Moses don't apply to us anymore. 
All right, think about this. Um, I'm going to give you a lot of references just to kind of back it up here. But Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it, right? He said it, he came to fulfill the law, right? So to abolish it would be, okay, it didn't count anymore. We're done with this. But to fulfill it means something different. So think about this, because us in the new covenant, with Christ coming and dying in our place, becoming that sacrifice for us, um, some things are different. Like Mark seven nineteen teaches us all foods are clean. Praise the Lord. We can eat bacon and shellfish. Um, uh, Romans 14 tells us that holy days are optional. We don't have to do all the holy days and practices. We can even worship on a different day besides Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Matthew five seventeen through 18. That's for Jesus abolishing the law. Sorry, fulfilling the law. Uh, Matthew five seventeen and 18. Um, and then the all foods being clean is Mark seven nineteen. And then... Uh, Holy days being optional is Romans 14, 5 and 6. Okay? And let me give you one more. Um, and the sacrificial system has been replaced by Christ. So we don't have to offer sacrifices on Sunday morning. That's Hebrews, like, chapter 7 through 10. Like, just the whole, the whole thing. You read that and you'll, <laughs> you'll get it. All right? Um, and so, uh, so, praise the Lord, we don't have to offer bulls and lambs and goats on Sunday mornings. Or any time, all right? Um, Jesus has fulfilled those things because he was the intent of that, right? Read the book of Hebrews. That's the whole point is that Jesus is better than all of those things. Um, however, that doesn't mean that we just throw out the whole Old Testament because according to Second Timothy, right, all scripture is what God breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture, there's no qualifiers, only the New Testament. No, all scripture, including Leviticus, right? Exactly, because he didn't have the New Testament. Because he was writing the New Testament, right? Yeah, yeah, and exactly. That's a great point. And so the entire Bible is useful to us, all right? And everything in the Bible reveals to us something about God's character. Um, the sacrificial system even reveals to us things about worship. Um, we don't have time for that, but it's great. So that's your first point. Second thing is this, all right? There's no indication in the New Testament that Leviticus should be treated as useless to us in the New Testament. So there's no indication in the New Testament that Leviticus, that Leviticus should be treated as useless to modern-day Christians, okay? I'll give you a quick reference here. Um, Jesus referred to Leviticus 19.18, which is uh, love your neighbor as yourself. He referred to that more than any other verse in the Old Testament, right? Any other verse, Jesus referred to Leviticus 19.18. And then the New Testament refers to that 10 times, even Peter and Paul quote Leviticus as part of their call to holiness. All right? I won't give you the references, but it's in 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter. Um, and so the New Testament writers see no problem using Leviticus as a guide for godly living. All right? And then the third thing we see is that um, even if we go, we'll go here in a minute in 1 Corinthians, but Paul's term that he uses in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 6 for men who practice homosexuality, we'll unpack that word more later, but the word that he uses for men who practice homosexuality, is actually derived from two words that are found in Leviticus. Um, nerd moment for a second. So the Old Testament is written in what language? Hebrew. Hebrew, yeah. Now you know. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in what language? Greek. Greek. All right. But they went back, and some guys, I don't know who, wrote what they call the Septuagint, all right, which is the Greek translation of the, New Te of the Old Testament. All right? So some guys went back and translated the Old Testament into Greek. The words um, for man and bed, which are arson and koita, if you cared. All right? um, Paul took those two words and combined them together to make a new word that he used for homosexuality in 1 Corinthians. So even see in um, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is referencing Leviticus in a way. All right? might have just blew your mind. You may be like, I don't even care about the Greek words, right? But just see that Paul is upholding and even referencing Leviticus even in 1 Corinthians, all right? And uh, most people agree he came up with that word, kind of coined it on his own. He did that a lot in some different uh, letters he did. Um, last thing is this, and we'll move on from Leviticus. Um, and this is kind of obvious, but all those things withstanding, Leviticus uses strong language in denouncing homosexual behavior, and it calls it an, an abomination. It calls it sin. All right, um, it's very serious about the way it calls it, and so we don't see any reason that we can cast out that verse. Right, I'm not trying to bash anyone over the head, but I'm just presenting it before you. There's no reason we have to throw out Leviticus. All right, go to Romans, if you will. 
I told you I'm taking you all over the Bible tonight. Go to Romans 1. Romans 1. Okay, Romans 1, we're going to look at verses 18 through 32. I'm going to do a quick walkthrough of the argument of this passage. We could spend all night here if we wanted to. But as you can see, I'm giving you more of a survey of these things tonight. All right. Um, let's go with Romans 1, 18 through 32. All right. I'm going to read a few verses, talk about it, and move on. All right. It's like, almost like an interactive study Bible. All right. So uh, look at verses 18 through 20 first. This is Paul giving, giving an argument of how sin has affected humanity. Like Romans is kind of Paul's like theology textbook. He's starting with sin and, and God's character and God's wrath being revealed about it. That's where he's going here. All right, so verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been, excuse me, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All right, so what Paul is saying here, I'll just kind of generally unpack it for you, is that we see right here that God has revealed his wrath against sinners, which is all of us without Christ, because we know the truth of God, but yet we suppress it. We see it there. We see that God has revealed an element of himself to every person through creation and in our, even our own conscience so that every person in the world is without excuse before God. All people stand condemned before God with no way to be saved besides hearing and receiving the gospel. All right. Move on to verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, from this part, we see this. We see that um, there are three exchanges that happen because humanity right, has suppressed the truth of God. There's three exchanges that happen. The first exchange we see right here in those verses is that rather than us turning to God, Humanity has chosen to worship other things, such as idols, um, representing man, birds, animals, and other creeping things. But also that can include, for us today, our modern idols of money, power, sex, and approval. That we've all turned from the true thing we should be worshiping God and instead worshiped all these other things, all these other idols, right? Let's move on to the next part, 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to this honoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So this is the second exchange. Because of our, our false worship, God has given people up to the lusts of their own hearts, which leads them to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. And so now, um, on our own, we use our bodies to gratify whatever desire and passion we have. I'm not just talking about sexual sin. I'm talking about every kind of sin regardless of how we were, we were designed to be, that God has given us up to say, all right, if you want, if you want that, have it your way. Now, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And here's the, the third exchange that we see right now, is that it's giving up of natural sexual relations with people of the opposite sex for relations with people of the same sex. And so what Paul's kind of saying here is this, is that homosexual practice is a horizontal example of a vertical rebellion against God. Right? It's a horizontal example of a vertical rebellion against God. Instead of honoring and benefiting from the ways that God has naturally designed men and women to work, Genesis 1 and 2, right? Instead, we have rebelled, and many people have rebelled and, and practiced sexual sins that are unnatural and go against the way that God designed us in terms of being fruitful and multiplying, having children, and even the way that our bodies were designed to work. That's, that's Paul's argument here, is that the, the pr progression of sin has led us to rebel against God even to the point that we rebel against even the very physical way that he um, has made us. All right? Look at verses 28 to 32 to close out this section. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's the third exchange we see there is that God has given over unbelievers to a debased mind to chase after sinful things. And one thing we need to be careful of here is that we don't elevate one specific thing in that list to be way worse um, than others. Because if you read that list, I think all of us can see something in our hearts that kind of resonates with things like being a slanderer or insolent or boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, right? Who, who, who of us has not been disobedient to our parents at least once in life, right? So we're all in that list, right? There ain't a single person in this room that's not in that list in some way, right? Um, So we should not necessarily elevate homosexuality as some far worse sin than any other. But we also should note, like I said, that Paul explicitly uses homosexual activity as an example of humanity suppressing God's truth and turning to their own way. All right? That's a really intense section, but I think Paul makes a pretty clear argument for us right now. All right, let me give you one more thing, and then we're going to talk about a few questions. All right? Um, 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, if you will. I know I feel like I'm beating you over the head with this, but we're about to move on here, okay? I just want to give you some survey overview. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, and we're going to kind of camp out here for a little bit to pull on a few things. But I want to give you a few things really quick to make you aware of. Um, like I mentioned, that word that Paul uses for men who practice homosexuality is two different uh, Greek words. Um, uh, I'll give them to you just for fun, for $5 words here. But malakoi and arsenikoitai are the two words. I only say that because malakoi is one word that means soft or effeminate. Um, arsenikoitai means sex between men. All right, this is what it means. Um, but if you have read much online, any blogs about this kind of stuff, you'll come across this really quick, is that some people say this. Well, Paul didn't have in his time uh, a view of committed same-sex relationships that we have today, like same-sex marriage. People will say, well, that didn't exist back in that time in in Paul's Greek culture. And so he was only talking about um, things that were very prevalent, which were male prostitution and man-boy love, as weird as that is to say. It was a legitimate thing back then that happened a lot. People will say, oh, he's only talking about those things. So since he's only condemning those actions then a committed homosexual relationship today is okay, all right? Now, before you think about that too much, let me give you a thought, all right? Um, so they would say that the relationships we have today are different, all right? But I would say that, that that's not true, and I'll give you this um, reference to, to back it up. Um, historian Thomas Hubbard, who's not a Christian, by the way, not a Christian at all, he wrote this book. Um, it's, it's really the definitive work on homosexuality in the ancient world. It's called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome. All right? And he shows in his book that homosexuality existed in a wide variety of forms in the Greek and Roman world, including committed same-sex relationships. So the kind of same-sex relationships you might think of today in terms of long, long-term committed marriage kind of relationships, they existed back in that time. Paul wasn't unfamiliar with those kind of things. Um, most people, based on that though, do believe that Paul invented that word, our synechoitai, um, but like I said, it's a combination from Leviticus of the man and the, um, the bed words there. Um, but the thing is, every person who read that in Greek at that time is going to understand what he means because they knew what arson was, they knew what koitem was. Like, we, can, we come up with weird words all the time these days, but we understand what they mean. Like, selfie, as weird of a word as it is, we understand it's like a self-photo, right? We know what that means, right? No one had to define that for you unless you're maybe like 55 years old. Right? But for you guys, you picked it up pretty quick, what that means. If people in that context would know what Paul was talking about when he mentioned that word, all right? And here's the thing, and I'll move on from this um, academic tangent for you. Um, but if Paul wanted to only reference and condemn, like, boy prostitution at that time, he could have used the words for it. Because sadly, 
That was so common in that culture at that time. They had specific words for those things. They had specific words for the active and passive role in those things. Paul could have used those words, but he chose not to. He chose instead to come up with a new word that painted with a very broad brush what he was talking about. All right? And so the bottom line is this, and we'll move on from it, is that to say that Paul um, is not talking about our modern view of long-term committed relationships really requires what I call hermeneutical gymnastics. It really requires you to, to do a lot of, you know, weaving and zigging and zagging in interpreting the Bible to make it work, right? It just uh, it requires a lot of work, and it really bends a lot of scriptures in some ways they weren't meant to be bended, okay? Um, there's no doubt Paul had in mind um, exactly what we're talking about today when it comes to same-sex relationships, all right? That's clear. But let me give you a few things, uh, other questions we have if you look at your other section, all right? A few, three, three questions we can walk through really quick. First off is that Jesus never spoke about it. You may have heard this before, all right? Um, you may have heard, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, so maybe we shouldn't make as big a deal about it. Maybe it's not as bad as we think. Um, but that's also not true, all right? Even though Jesus didn't specifically talk about homosexuality, he did uphold the entire Old Testament law, right? He said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Um, we've already discussed a lot of that. But Jesus fulfilling the law didn't remove the moral commands from the law, right? Such as sexual purity and right sexual practice. Um, Jesus affirmed the creative order. He affirmed the, the law of Moses. And that he declared um, that sex is only permissible between a man and a woman in a, in a covenant relationship of marriage. Um, I'll give you a reference. We won't read it for sake of time. But Matthew 19. Go read Matthew 19, 3 through 6, if you want to see that. Jesus upholding um, the creative order in Genesis. All right? And so here's the thing. Anything that deviates from what Jesus upheld is called sexual immorality. And that means for us, regardless of where we stand on this, that means that we're, that we're all on level ground here um, when it comes to this. Colby said before that we're all sexually immoral in some way, and we're all in need of forgiveness and restoration no matter who we are. All right? So to, but to, to put it into perspective, think about this. Um, the scriptures never record um, Jesus saying the words um, idolatry, uh, rape, fraud, or bestiality. Jesus never specifically addressed those things, right? But is anyone going to make an argument that those things are okay? Because Jesus never specifically said something about them. I hope not, okay? And so that, that's the idea there. But here's the second question people talk about. Is that what about people who are born with same-sex desires and can't change? All right? Um, I'm going to breeze through this quickly for sake of time, but I got this. Um, here's the thing. Our culture teaches us that we should simply follow our own desires and what they tell us and that we can't be like authentic people these days unless we live out what's deeply inside of us, right? That we're not really being authentic to ourselves. Um, we're not really being true because we're not living out the desires in, in the way that I was born, right? The way I was made. Uh, but that's not what scripture teaches us, if you think about it. Romans 3.23 says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Jeremiah 17.9 says our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick, and who can trust them? And so many times, honestly, our desires are just simply wrong. Even the, the desires we feel like, even if they're natural, are simply wrong. But even with that, Scripture also tells us that anyone, including people who have practiced homosexuality, and anyone in here, regardless of your sinful acts, can be transformed by God's Spirit. That there is... Hope for transformation for anyone. Uh, look back at 1 Corinthians with me again, if you will. Look at uh, verse 11 in that. I told you we were going to camp out here for a minute. Verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Think about that. Washed means that our guilt is removed. Sanctified means that um, we're set apart for God and his purposes. Justified means that the penalty for our sins has been canceled because of the debt that's been paid in full by Christ. But notice what it doesn't say there, all right? It doesn't say anything about our sinful desires disappearing when we come to know Christ, right? Here's the thing. God can heal anyone of any sinful desire they have, but he doesn't always choose to do so. I have friends who have alcoholics, um, who have an alcoholic past. They were alcoholics before they came to know Christ, right? For whatever reason, whether it's family, whatever. Some of them, I have friends that have come to Christ, and the desire to abuse alcohol has just gone. It's just not there anymore. It was almost like a switch has flipped. I have other friends who have come to know Christ who struggle with that. And they, they can't go to certain places. They can't go to bars. They can't be around certain people drinking because it's too much of a temptation for them. 
I can't tell you why God chose to change one person's desires and didn't choose to tr- change other person's desires, but I can just tell you that it, it's a fact of life. Is that, so that's somehow how God chooses to work. And I believe the same thing is true for homosexuality. That just because someone comes to Christ does not necessarily mean that their attraction to someone in the same gender just disappears. It may, it may not. But we have to trust God and his wisdom uh, for why he would do that. Uh, J.D. Greer, in a sermon that, uh, that he preached on this idea, said this. He said, God's grace in, the, in your life may not be the removal of that desire. It may be his enablement for you to struggle against it faithfully for the rest of your life with the assurance that you are in Christ, washed, sanctified, and justified, that he will no longer hold your sins against you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed the guilt of our transgressions from us. Right? And so... Um, honestly, that may be a mercy that God puts on our life is for us to struggle with certain sins, whether it be sexual or not, in order to drive us more to dependence in Christ and to rely on him and not simply think, oh, well, I don't have that desire anymore. I guess I'm good. I guess I'm just you know, doing fine. Because then we begin to become what, independent and think we have this all figured out, right? But God could even use the struggles in our lives as a way to drive us to him, right? I know I've seen that in my life, all right? Last question, and we'll begin to close. Um, isn't this unfair to people who struggle with same-sex attraction, all right? Yeah, I mean, you could argue that. You could. But think about this, all right? I'm not going to get into the debate tonight about the cause of homosexuality and the nature versus nurture, but it seems like from what I've read, it's a combination of nature and nurture. All right, we can talk about that later if you want to. But regardless of that, here's the thing. We are not defined by our sexuality. You are not defined as a heterosexual. That's not your identity, right? You may be heterosexual. Your identity is not in that, right? It's not the definition of who you are. And so even for us today... Even when it comes to our desires, we live in a fallen world still where our desires are twisted. And many people have desires that are just wrong. And just because they even say that they were born that way, whether that you know, is scientific or whatever, doesn't mean that we can simply embrace those desires and follow them to where they lead us, right? We'll talk about that more in a second. But here's the thing, and here's why I want to be really sensitive about this. is because um, I know for a fact there are many Christians in the world uh, that understand all that I went through with you in the Bible. They get all these verses. They, they know what the Bible says about homosexuality. They have, they have committed to follow Christ. They want to live holy lives. But yet they still struggle with being attracted to people of the same sex. And for whatever reason, God has not removed that desire and they still struggle with it. And here's the thing. I authentically hurt for those people. I authentically do. Because I know it's an incredibly difficult burden for them to carry. Because think about this. What if I told you that you were never allowed to marry the person that you desired to marry? What if you could, I told you you could never start a family? You could never have a sexual relationship with someone, ever. That's what celibate Christian people who struggle with same-sex desire, that's what they're faced with. That's the decision that they face. That's the reality of celibacy in, with someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, Right? And it's harsh, but that's what the Bible teaches us, right? We've seen how the Bible addresses homosexual um, activities, right? And so that's what we're presenting to someone when we say that your choice is to either have a change of desire or live a life of celibacy, right? I know that's harsh, it's heavy, but that, that's really what we have here. But here's the thing, and I hurt for those people. That's why I'm very sensitive to this issue but like I said, there, there is possible hope for people to change. Let me give you a few examples. Um, Rosaria Butterfield um, was a lesbian atheist professor of women's studies at Syracuse University. Um, she came to Christ after uh, being befriended by a pastor, and she's now a Christian author, and she's a homeschool mom. She experienced transformation from her sexual desires and is now married to a man and has kids, and she's a homeschool mom, she's an author. All right. uh, Jackie Hill Perry, she's a Christian rapper, she's a poet. She experienced same-sex attraction from when she was five years old, from very early in her life. And she's now a wife and a mom. And so those people uh, have experienced change. Uh, change is possible, but here's the thing. All right, here's why I'm careful with this. Change is possible, but it doesn't mean that the change in our desires is necessary. All right? You hear what I'm saying with that? That may be controversial, but change is possible. I don't believe it is necessary, okay? Because for some people, it's just not there, right? There, there's, there's no desire, right? We can get into that, but um, I, I don't think it's fair to say that change has to be necessary. 
But that also means we should still flee temptation, flee sexual sin, right? Um, but in terms of it being unfair to ask people whose desires don't change to live a life of celibacy, here's the thing, and this harkens back to what we talked about two weeks ago. Remember, marriage does not complete you, right? Remember what I talked about? The nuclear family is not the end-all, be-all. Marriage does not complete you. Sexual intimacy is not this end-all, be-all that if you finally reach that point, then your life is just complete, right? It's not the case, right? But sadly, in the church many times, we uphold that standard and we, idol- we, um, we idolize the nuclear family, which it's good to uphold the family. We, we live in a, a culture that's terrible when it comes to the family. We downplay it, right? But we idolize it many times, sometimes in the church, to where people who maybe are in this boat of struggling with same-sex attraction feel like, well, man, I'm just never going to live a life that's complete and, and fulfilled if I don't have these changes in me that I just don't have, right? And so we need to be sympathetic and understanding with those people. I know it's a hard thing to wrestle with, right? Um, but we have to remember that marriage is not complete. Uh, the church, like we said earlier, is meant to be the new family of God. It's meant to be a place of community. It's meant to be a place of companionship, um, that supersedes anything else. Remember Jesus talking about his mother and brothers and sisters? He said, you know, he looked at his, his actual biological family and said, these aren't really my mothers and brothers and sisters. These people, the people in the, the new covenant community, the new covenant family of God, these other Christians, these are my mother and my brother and my sisters, right? That's a high calling and a high challenge for us in the church to really understand what it means to be a real community, of people who do life together and even bring in people who are struggling with certain things that make it difficult for them to maybe fit in in the normal church, right? And so one more thing on that and we'll conclude is that if God calls someone to a single life, whether they're heterosexual or not, um, he will not leave them alone in that. God will give them the power and the ability to live that out. God never gives anyone a calling in life and leaves them on their own to fulfill that calling. If God calls someone and puts them in a situation to live a life of celibacy, he will equip them and empower them to do that. All right. You may have more questions about that. That's okay. We can talk later if you'd like to. But let me, let me conclude with this and we'll wrap up. All right, this is my last thing I have on here. Is that all of us need to walk in repentance and faith, preaching the gospel to ourselves, Every day. Like I mentioned earlier, sexual gratification, excuse me, isn't a right. It's not, it's not a right that we have um, in life. It's not something that we all are owed in some kind of way. Scripture commands us over and over again to act in a self-controlled way, right? And so if we just justified our sexual activity based on our natural attraction or based on that's the way I was born, then we could honestly justify a lot of things, including uh, bestiality, um, pedophilia, even necrophilia, could be justified because there are many people out there in the world who say, I was born this way. I was born as an older man who just loves young boys. And they would, was like, and they would justify, I was born this way. And so if we follow that path of, well, just follow your desires, then we would have to be accepting of that. And so and we can't follow that path because we've got to remember that sin distorts even our very nature. So that means that many times we have the desire to do things that are sinful and we don't have the right to give in to any inclination. And the truth is, is our sexual desires, whether gay or straight, on their own will always lead outside of God's will. Every single time. Your sexual desires on their own will always lead outside of God's will. Because our own sinful sexual desire is to just get it as much as we can with whoever we can, right? That's our own um, sinful desire, right? But that is not what the scriptures have called us to, right? And so we all have to submit our lives to the Lord, our desires to the Lord, no matter who we are, what we struggle with. I'll give you one more verse and we'll wrap up with this, right? Isaiah 66, 2, I'll just read it to you. Isaiah 66, 2 says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So that should be all of our postures before God. No matter what we're struggling with, our posture should be one of humility, a contrite heart, a heart that is broken, a heart that is willing to submit to God in whatever area, and someone who seeks to actively obey God in every way. Um, Part of following Christ is surrendering everything we have to him, and that includes our sexuality, uh, no matter what our desires are. So if you're not married in here, which is, I think, almost everybody in this room, then God's desire for you right now is to save a sexual relationship for marriage. 
So if you followed your sexual desire right now, it would be outside of God's will. So all of us in this room have to submit our own desires, whatever they are, to God. And so, but, but the issue is this, or the reality is this, is that we all have sin that we struggle with. We all have things that we're dealing with. We're all broken. That's why we all need the gospel. That's why we all have to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. And the gospel is not a gospel that says, well, you're too dirty, you can't come to Christ, but the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, regardless of what you struggle with, right? And so we all need the gospel. We all need to realize that we are broken and destitute and you know, have completely rebelled against God and gone our own way, like it said in Romans 1. We've got to realize that. We've got to realize that the only way we could ever be saved, ever be restored back to God and, create, and, gone, and brought back to his original design is through Christ through surrendering our lives to him, recognizing that Christ died the death that we deserved, lived the perfect life that we <clears throat> never could live. And that's all we simply do now is put our complete trust and our complete faith in Christ. We repent from our sin, which means to have a change of mind. It means that we recognize that, um, that our life is broken, that we need a Savior, and we simply turn from our, ourselves, turn from our own sin, and we trust completely in Christ. If we do that, Scripture promises us that we will be completely forgiven, completely restored. Does it mean that our lives will be perfect? Does it mean that certain sinful desires will disappear, but that the Holy Spirit will endure inside of us and give us the power and the ability to submit our lives to him, right? So we all need the gospel. So if this is an issue for you tonight, more than anything else, let the gospel be an issue before anything else. If you have issues with some of the verses we read, let the gospel be the issue first, right? And so if you'd like to talk more about that later, I'd love to talk to you even um, later on in the week, okay? But let's do this. I want to do something different tonight. Um, I want to uh, pray for us, and then I want, to, um, I want us to talk as a group about these last two questions, okay? And then we'll wrap up. All right, but let me pray for us, and we'll chat for a few minutes as a group, and then we'll be done. Father, we, we thank you that, Lord, your word is hard sometimes. Lord, your, your word tells us things that um, we don't want to hear, and it doesn't say things that we'd like to hear sometimes. And, but, Lord, we want to submit our lives to you. We want to um, completely surrender our, our desires, our will, everything to Christ, because you know better. Lord, your word and your heart is for, for your glory and our good. So we submit ourselves to you. We ask that you would help us, um, especially every Christian in this room, to follow Christ in grace and truth. I pray for any person in here that isn't, hasn't believed in Christ, hasn't believed in the gospel and been transformed, that tonight could even be the night that they surrender their lives to Christ and experience that transformation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.